0: transform your creative potential today head over to unmistakablecreative.com/4keys use the number 4 k e y s that's unmistakablecreative.com/4keys and download your free copy
1: being able to to walk beside these these kids as they figure out what they want and what they need like that is i was i was talking to a friend about helping trans people in with mental health issues who are in in like a group home situation and how to navigate that and i'm like honestly what they need is an advocate and not a set of of prescribed principles because what one person needs isn't necessarily what another person needs and we're not always aware of what we need unless we have someone to kind of say okay in in this situation you know what do you think you would want here are some options and and you know it's it's just so so beautifully complicated and diverse. And, and I love it because I can think about it for days and hours and still not know and have more questions than I do answers, but in this profoundly beautiful way.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mason, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank
1: you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You are one of a, a long line of many people who have been referred to us by our mutual friend and former podcast guest, Sarah Peck. Uh, and every time she refers somebody, I don't even read their bio. I just say yes, because of the <laughs> fact that somehow she seems to have a knack for constantly sending us uh, amazing people. So uh, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: So I I grew up in an extremely rural school. Like my entire high school had 250 people, uh, graduating class of 60. So we were all kind of in the same social group, um, but I was in this little subset of um, nerds and uh, really conservative Christian nerds. Is is the the uh, aspect that I the space that I took up in high school, and that's it's it's almost baffling looking back on me in high school versus where I am now because I was very much in the closet and now I'm very much out and I was very much, uh, I mean, I was very much the same person, but very different from where I am now. And it's, it's almost baffling to look at my, my journey from then to now and make sense of it. That's, Uh that's something that I've really kind of still have moments where I'm like, Oh Yeah. I was that Bible thumper kid at church five times a week and going to Bible study after school. Right. That was a part of my life. (laughs) And, and, you know, it's, but it's, it's really shaped getting here and like being from a rural community is almost more salient than, than like the social group I was part of, because, you know, when you have 66 kids in your graduating class, you're, you're all in the same social group. It's just subsets. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So navigating that duality of the same time being in the closet and also surrounded by sort of Bible thumping religious Christian, I mean, and what is that like? And how do you deal with the fact that you have these two parts of your identity going on, particularly at that age?
1: Uh, you know, at that age, I was, I was so deep in the closet. Like, my big joke is that I was so far in the closet, I think I found Narnia. Um, but I, d- I had no idea. Like, I didn't even know I was in the closet. I thought that, you know, I just wasn't, like, I was able to hide my sexuality within conservative Christianity because it wasn't that I wasn't attracted to men. It was that I wasn't attracted to any of the men in my small community because they weren't godly enough. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't even realize, like, that I was attracted to women until I was 19 and had gone off to college and, and lived a little life. And then I was like oh, I don't actually just really respect her. i, I That's a crush. Okay. <laughs> and like this big awakening moment was like, oh my God, I want to hold her. And it's not platonic. And then I panicked and like ran as deep into the closet as I could yet again. But this time I knew and I hated myself for years and like massive mental health issues in and out of the psychiatric ward with self-harm and suicidal thoughts. And until I finally came out at 23. So like, it's, it's been an interesting journey.
0: Tell me about the experience of coming out. Uh, One, who do you tell at first? Are there people who probably already knew what is the, the, you know, reaction from your own parents and family like, and particularly given the community that you grew up in?
1: It's, it's been interesting. I mean, coming out is something that never ends. Um, at this point, I don't have to use words to come out most of the time. People look at me and go, yep, gay. Okay. Um, but when I first came out, I was, I was terrified. I came out to my, my cousin first because I knew that she would be a super safe person to come out to. And, and then just kind of slowly started telling more and more people. I told my younger sister and she was supportive. I, you know, told close friends and they were supportive. And, and I just kept on expanding this circle of authenticity and, and telling people who I am and, and revealing this part of myself. And, you know, I mean, my parents, it's, it's been an interesting journey with them. I told my mom um, in a, in a therapy appointment because I was too scared to tell her otherwise. And she was like, what makes you think that I wouldn't be supportive? And I was like, It's, it's little things that made me, made me doubt, you know, and just little comments here and there that, that, that filled me with doubt that you would be there. And, you know, she has, has turned out to be an amazing supporter. She is, you know, unfamiliar and, and a little uncomfortable, I think, but she lives in rural Missouri and it is this unfamiliar, you know, she just doesn't know and doesn't want to screw up so it's awkward but like she loves the shit out of me. She loves the shit out of my daughter and the shit out of my wife and like okay cool. And then my dad is like this stereotypical Midwestern farmer um who doesn't talk a whole lot. And so like the story of like I came out to my dad and it was like yep and that was the conversation. But then it was <laughs> won- that was it. And I was like cool. But then the moment I realized that my dad was completely cool was uh, we actually, uh, neither of us had ever been to Hooters. And there was one that was close to where we, where I was living. And, you know, he asked me where we, we should get dinner. And I just kind of listed all the restaurants and like half jokingly included Hooters. And he was like, you know, I've never been there. I was like, I haven't either. So my dad and I went to Hooters together. And as we were leaving, he was like, you know, I could never take your mom or sisters anywhere like this. And like, that was the moment where I was like, oh my dad's totally cool. (laughs) And like, just that moment of realization was really powerful. Um, And then one of the last people I told was my older sister who uh, at that point, I think had three kids and she cut me out of her life for six months and, and didn't let me be a part of her life until we had this tenuous don't ask, don't tell relationship for about five or six years Um, and then our younger sister passed away from ovarian cancer four years ago and we tried to mend our relationship at that point, but I told her that I was going to marry my wife and she requested no more communication after that. And so I've seen her three times in the past four years. Wow. Yeah.
0: So when you realized you were gay, uh, what are the questions that you're wrestling with about what this could mean for your life? Um, what are the things that you were afraid of? And what are the kinds of questions you think that parents or your parents were thinking when you told them or, or asking themselves about this?
1: I, man, it was a huge identity shift for me because my my faith had been, been the background and the like salient factor in my life for so long. And all of a sudden, it, it isn't that it was taken away from me. It was that it shifted because this, this world that I was very comfortable in and felt very safe in all of a sudden wasn't safe. Um, When I came out, I was excommunicated from the church that I was a member of and, you know, told that I wasn't welcome in their, in their doors ever again. And that, that shook me to the core. And, And so I had to like go through this rediscovery of who I am at 23. And, you know, it's, I feel like now at 33, at 10 years out of the closet, I've really only in the past two or three years started to come into my own because it's almost like, you know, going through a second adolescence where I was like, oh, right, this is, this is who I am. This is like the, the unchangeable intrinsic parts of, of who I am. And these haven't changed. I just have different words and definitions for them.
0: What are the experiences uh, that you've had over the last couple of years that have cemented this identity more or or made this foundation that this identity is stronger for you?
1: Um, You know, it's my story is that I came out as as being gay and then I came out as genderqueer, which is kind of a whole whole extra level of of, you know, being in this space where I don't really identify as female, but I don't really identify as male. I'm just kind of somewhere in this gray area in between the two. And so kind of navigating that and really a lot of therapy and a lot of soul searching has, has been really good. And, you know, a lot of the identity shift has more to do with my mental health issues than, than coming out in some ways. Um, because the, the first job that I held down for longer than like two years or longer than a year was at a textbook warehouse here in town. And I literally for eight hours picked textbooks off of shelves and put them into boxes to be shipped. And that was my job. And it was exactly what I needed at that point because I knew exactly what I was expecting. As I walked in the doors every day, I knew exactly what would happen if I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't have to. And you know, I got exercise, which, you know, is super good for mental health. And I learned that maybe I could be a responsible adult. Maybe I could do this. And that was like super foundational for me. And then when I, I met my wife five years ago, seeing how she loves me and how she sees me authentically has really helped me come into my own and, and learn how to advocate for myself and to say, no, actually, I use they, other, them pronouns and I am going to have that difficult conversation when people use the wrong words for me and, and to really kind of realize this is who I am. And then kind of the the final step in that is um, through my wife, I started working uh, with the LGBT teen group here in my town and seeing teenagers who, you know, are 13 and coming out and navigating school and parents and life at such a young age has, has just really profoundly impacted the way I want to show up and the way that I want to live my life. Because I know that these kids are looking at me as an example. And so do I let myself get mired down in, in the bullshit that my bipolar brain tells me, or do I work my ass off to rise above? Well, I'm going to work my butt off. Like I'm going to make this happen because I want those kids to see that they have a future.
0: What are the the challenges? I mean, we have talked a bit uh, about the challenges that you face navigating the relationship and social dynamics, but what about life in general? I, I had another transgender person here, at Ray Singari who talked about you know being a transgender artist and and you know the job, you know the job search, the professional areas. Like, there are a whole set of challenges that I think most of us are completely unaware of, and I wonder if you could shed some more light on that for me.
1: Yeah, when when I started discovering gender identity, it was just like. A whole new world uh, of fears and questions and excitement. Um, you know, I mean, I I got my my bachelor's degree. Uh, my goal was before I was 30, and I got it at 28 and a half. So, you know, check that box. And and after that, I didn't know what to do with myself. And, you know, I, I ended up getting a job. Making coffee and four and a half years later, here I am, because the company that I work with is so incredibly inclusive, like before my name was legally changed to Mason, they instated systems where every every store like if I were to go to another store to use my discount, Mason would show up and not my not my birth name, and you know what that keeps me there, and that kept me there and And, you know, the struggle of like, how do I apply for a job? What do I do before my name was legally changed? What do I put on a resume? How do I talk about my pronouns? Do I even have that conversation? When do I have that conversation? Uh, You know what I mean? I'm lucky to be in a progressive college town, you know, in Missouri, where there is a non-discrimination policy in place on the city level. Um, But, you know, if I were to want to go to Jefferson City to get a job, they could fire me with the only reason being that I'm trans. And, and, you know, that has, has in some ways created this desire to, to strike out on my own and, and have my own business instead of working for someone else in part because of those fears of having to navigate work life. And, you know, will people freak out if I'm wearing a shirt and tie, you know, how do I, you know, navigate other people's reactions? And the systems in place that just, you know, like before my wife and I were able to get legally married, what, what would we do? And, and, you know, now that we have a kid, there's like, now that we're able to be legally married, that kind of solves a lot of those things. But, you know, the, the threat of being, being fired for being who I am, all like even still hangs over my head, even though I'm in a city that, that where that's a legally protected class.
0: Mm. What? Uh, what do you think has to happen in terms of, of policy, uh, or or social structure in order for this to be more acceptable and to, to make life more manageable for trans people like yourself? Like, what are the things that people in power need to do about this?
1: You know, a lot of the changes are, are relatively small that have a huge impact. Um, man, you know, if I see somebody's intake forms or application has a pronouns line on it. I'm, I'm there. Like, that's like a little happy dance or like seeing pronoun lines in email signatures is another thing that just makes me go, yes. And, and, you know, I think the first step is just having these conversations, you know, having conversations with trans people about their experiences in the workplace, having conversations about what challenges, you know, they have faced because everybody's experiences are different. And, and, you know, the challenges that I face are very different Than than what other people face, but you know, working in retail, I get called "Ma'am" about twenty thousand times a day. It feels like, and every time, it's like, it's like you know, water torture, like a drip of water on your forehead. That when it happens once, it's like, oh well, that was mildly inconvenient. But when it's every day, all day, it just is like, ugh, the worst. And you know, I think educating people and and starting to have a conversation is step number 1 and and you know then let's move into you know pronoun lines on on forms and and changing language on websites and having inclusive healthcare and providing benefits to domestic partners and you know all of those little things like fertility isn't covered by most companies insurance and so you know to have our daughter we paid approximately $5000 to get my wife pregnant. And, you know, that's even for, for people without a uterus to grow a baby, that's, it's even more expensive and even more complicated. And, and, you know, people should be able to have families and should have their employers supporting their families. And, and, you know, just those, those things that, you know, we don't always think about, like, as as people in privilege myself included you know not necessarily on the trans aspect but on others other aspects like i am so unaware because i am i'm simply oblivious i don't have to think about things and you know if we sit down and have conversations and learn like that's huge to be able to help navigate you know these potentially tricky waters like gender neutral bathrooms how do we do that you know, if it's a single stall bathroom, it should be, it should be gender neutral. Like I see absolutely no reason not to have a gender neutral single stall bathroom. If it's multi-stall, yeah, it's nuanced and complicated. And, you know, there are no cut and dry answers for, for the, that sort of situation. In my mind, I think that it's very much variable on, you know, who, who your audience is and, and what stand you want to take. And, you know,
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com tapiphone tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So you mentioned that you worked with you work with teenagers, uh, you know, around uh, LGBT issues and, and coming out. And being a teenager is, is such a mind fuck of a situation <laughs> as it is, right? Like, I don't think anybody looks at being a teenager and thinks, yeah, that was one of the greatest times of my life. Like, all I remember is I fought with my parents. I thought they were the most awful people in the world. And, you know, my voice was changing and I didn't understand why my hormones were out of control. <laughs> if I layered a, a gender identity crisis on top of that, I don't know how I would handle it. So I, I wonder. One, you know, how do you guide people through this process? What are the unique challenges, particularly when they're dealing with this at that age because that age is so complicated as it is?
1: It's it's really interesting though, because you look at today's teens have, have so much access to knowledge and information that that I didn't when, when I was in high school because, you know, by the powers of the internet. And, you know, it's it's amazing how self-aware and well-educated these teenagers are on on aspects of of identity and who they are and how they want to show up in the world and what what I find to be the biggest challenges that they face are not so much internally as as externally it's you know how do i how do i talk to my siblings about this how do i talk to my parents about this you know how do i how do i navigate the school system you know, where, where so often, you know, we're, we're separated boys and girls and, you know, what do I do about PE? What do I do about all of these situations? And, and, you know, being able to, to walk beside these, these kids as they figure out what they want and what they need. Like that is, I was, I was talking to a friend about helping, trans people in, with mental health issues who are in in like a group home situation and how to navigate that. And I'm like, honestly, what they need is an advocate and not a set of of prescribed principles because what one person needs isn't necessarily what another person needs. And we're not always aware of what we need unless we have someone to kind of say, okay, in, in this situation, you know, what do you think you would want? Here are some options. And, and you know, it's it's just so so beautifully complicated and diverse. And, and I love it because I can think about it for days and hours and still not know and have more questions than I do answers, but in this profoundly beautiful way.
0: What are school systems doing to handle this? Because I, I don't imagine this is, you know, isolated to one school district or anything like that. So I mean, what, what, are, what are people in our education system doing to navigate this dynamic?
1: Uh, there are more and more gender neutral bathrooms are showing up in our schools, which is amazing. And, and, you know, it, it, it depends on, on where the school is located, what they are, are able and willing to do, you know, here in Missouri, I've, I've worked with a couple of rural schools who are like, here's what we can do, but, but there's not really much else we can, you know, because there would be such an uproar and like, I understand that, but man, it sucks. And, and, you know, I mean, I feel like. Having having some sort of non discrimination act you know policy in place is is a huge step. Um, especially like our our city school district has a non discrimination policy in place for um, employees. And so my I have a friend who is uh, a gender asexual and aromantic, um, and and it is a a teacher in the school district and has n- had nothing but amazing support from its principal on the elementary school level. So like the principal has fielded all of the, the parent conversations, and and that's just been really cool to see how it's played out and the support that this person has had as an employee. And knowing that, you know, these kids have a positive role model, someone who maybe looks like them that, that they didn't know otherwise. And you know, that's where that's where I really see that that schools can step up is in supporting their LGBT teachers and staff and in educating their teachers. Uh, You know, educating as to like why it's important to you know call roll by saying, "Hey, will you introduce yourself?" Instead of saying names, you know, and like the name issue is one that I recently like had this realization that, that you know asking people for what name they go by instead of using the legal one on the roster doesn't just impact trans students; it it impacts students who who might have trauma associated with a name or or who just go by a nickname, even as simple as that. You know, like. Though it's the, the implications of some of these changes go beyond just the LGBT community and kind of realizing that has been has been eye opening for me.
0: So you mentioned that you have a daughter uh, yeah. and I wonder uh, about the experience of, of being you know, trans and, and raising kids. Uh, what is it like? Uh, and then, you know, what is it like for your daughter as well?
1: She, she's 18 months old now. So, you know, she's kind of in that space where, you know, me, me being who I am and, and her having, having two parents who, who the world views as female, they're like, she, I mean, she obviously doesn't give two fucks. It's her mama and May, whatever. Um, yeah. But, you know, we've been really lucky in that we have a, a daycare that has been amazing and, and super supportive of our family. And, but I I have had this really interesting like insight of seeing the double standard of parenting for for moms versus dads in this super intimate way where you know as a masculine person I am I am treated more like a dad would be and like people are amazed when I show up and I'm on the parents committee at school or when I you know solo parent and and take care of our, our kiddo for five days while my my wife went on a trip. And like, like there was at one point, uh, when I was, when, when she was really young, like six months old. And I was exhausted at, at work that day. And one of my coworkers was like, wow, you were up with a baby all night. That's amazing. And I was like, why is that amazing? Like, I, I don't, I don't get it, but at the same time, we do have this, this double standard of what is expected of moms versus what is expected of dads. Like the amount of mom guilt that my wife experiences is very different from what I experience. And like seeing her navigate parenting alongside me as a feminine, feminine person who identifies as a woman, like her, her guilt and shame and her, her, perceptions of, and, and cares about what other people think about her is so vastly different from mine. And, and just kind of seeing that has been really interesting and has shifted the way that I view parenting and parents and, and has, has opened up a lot, of, a lot of thoughts and conversations around what does masculinity look like and mean to me as someone who is assigned female at birth, someone who is socialized female what does it mean to be a masculine person?
0: Hmm. What, if any, have been uh, uncomfortable or awkward or difficult moments uh, in situations with other people who've seen you and your wife together and interacted with your family? Have you had situations that you feel like judgment is being passed on you? And what are those and, and how do you navigate those?
1: Uh, we, we luckily haven't had too many, um, you know, it's always real weird when we're asked if we're sisters. Uh, <laughs> eh, no. <laughs> um, but the, the main one is we went to uh, a doctor's appointment together, uh, when Bug was sick and the, the doctor act- asked us who was the real mom. And it was like, we're, we're both her parents. Like there, there is no real mom. Yes. My wife carried her. And no, she doesn't share my DNA, but that's not what makes a parent. And it was just, it's, it's the, the one big moment where we were like, what the fuck? No. And, and beyond that, there haven't been too many beyond awkward stares, (laughs) which at this point in my life uh, are just par for the course.
0: So your daughter is 18 months old, uh, which, you know, at, at this point, like you said, she's probably not even really aware of the situation. She just has two people who love and care for her, which at eighteen months is, you know, what you probably need. But as she gets older, she is probably going to become aware of the fact that you are she's in a situation that's different from, you know, the people that she's friends with, the people that she goes to school with. Uh, how do you plan on on navigating that dynamic? What challenges do you anticipate? Uh, And, you know, what do you think that that whole experience is going to be like by the time she reaches an age uh, where she is able to understand what's going on?
2: I,
1: I am more worried about other parents than I am about her, her peers. Uh, You know, I mean, kids, kids don't give a shit until they're taught to, you know, about, about who's in her, you know. And and we plan on telling her from a very early age, even starting now, that, you know, there are all different kinds of families. Some kids have two moms. Some kids have two dads. Some kids have a mom and a dad. Some kids live with their grandparents. And that that family is family. And that's what matters. But at the same time, I'm like, how do I have these conversations about, like, in-depth gender theory and, you know, what non-binary gender means and and seeing me authentically, when, when the world doesn't, because, you know, society just isn't quite there yet. Like, I'm not entirely sure, you know, how we're going to have those conversations and how we're going to navigate that. But, you know, I also look at, you know, the teenagers that I've worked with and the teenagers in my life and, you know, just, and looking at my generation and the people who, you know, are, are my age and just how much, further we've come and how much better people want to do and you know I'm I just think people need to know and people just don't know and are afraid to ask and you know ask that's how you learn find a safe person to ask don't expect everybody to do emotional labor on your behalf but like for me (laughs) ask ask me please let me let me talk about this stuff I love it (laughs)
0: You know, I, when I heard you talk about that, uh, I was watching a, a, an episode of, of uh, last week tonight with with John Oliver, and it was about school segregation, which you didn't think, okay, we live in, you know, 2018, seriously, like there's school segregation, and it turns out it's actually quite common, more than we think. And, you know, just based on uh, policy and design, schools are segregated, not based on law, but because of policy. And they showed this clip of uh, a psychologist, a mom, and a really, really young girl, like maybe two or three years old or whatever, you know, super, super young. Uh, And she had gone to a school where she had only ever seen white kids. And the psychologist had her point to various... um, She had a picture of all these babies and she said, which ones are the good ones, which one is the bad one? And she actually pointed to the black baby. Mm. And, you know... And and the mom was just horrified. And what the mom, the, what the, the psychologist said is, this is what happens when kids don't get exposed to people that don't look like them or don't appear like them, or they they don't. Uh, it's just a lack of exposure creates this bias, uh, mm-hmm. you know, unintentionally, and it makes me think that, you know, I think that the reality is, is that the more that kids are exposed to families like yours, the more that it won't become something to see as, as abnormal, but okay. Yeah. This is, this is totally normal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's where like, you know, I'm lucky that that we live in a diverse community um, where there are a lot of LGBT families and where I know my daughter will see, see kids with families like hers. Um, and, you know, that's when if, if you have a kid and you're in this position, like books are huge when it comes to exposure. If you don't have those people in your life, I mean, I grew up in a community that's 98% white, you know, I was not exposed and I am still working on, on bias over race, just that was ingrained with me by, by lack of, of knowledge. And, but reading and reading to your kids and reading books that have LGBT families, even if you don't explicitly talk about it, like that has huge power to read these books where it's like, oh, and look, you know, this, this baby has two mommies. And like kids get it at a young age when they see it, but you're right. They have to see it.
0: Hmm. So I guess where I want to finish with uh, is by talking about the role that Media and, and culture and, and popular culture. I mean, you mentioned books. What is that? What role does that play? In and what is the role of media in helping us raise awareness of, of the things that you and I are talking about?
1: It's massive. Um, I mean, I, I, I am not a, a huge media consumer myself. I tend to be in the podcast audiobook world, but like, seeing people like me portrayed in a positive light, even now, like is, is the most exciting thing in the world. And, and, you know, for, for kids and for teens, you know, whether they're LGBTQ or not to see families that look like mine, I mean, maybe, maybe they won't be the ones staring at us. Maybe they won't be, you know, Maybe if your kid sees people who, who appear more androgynous, they won't be the one in the grocery store screaming, mommy, is that a boy or a girl, which is totally developmentally appropriate if that happens. Um, but you know, exposure through, through media, through popular culture, through just the ability to have those conversations, you know, is, is so powerful because you know we can't always control the community we live in and how diverse it is but but we can you know have a say in what we consume and what what we watch and and where we put our attention and our energy and and I think it's all about being being intentional in you know educating ourselves and and look, seeking diversity
0: wow uh, well this has been really really thought provoking and eye-opening and and insightful as I expected it would be. Uh, So I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Authenticity. We are all so insanely, beautifully, wonderfully diverse and unique. Own it, man. Own it.
0: Awesome. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything else that you're up to? Uh,
1: the two places that you can find me most often are themasonaid.com and at masonaid on Instagram.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com/4 keys. Use the number four kEYs. That's unmistakablecreative.com/4 keys and download your free copy.